You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Hey everybody, it is episode 242 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast. We're brought to you today by GameMat.eu for pre-painted resin terrain, neoprene mats, STL files, all that jazz. Event 10 is 10% off that order. And panhandle3d.etsy.com will give you 15% order off your order with uh, ph3d15 off as the code. And uh, of course they've got STL um, uh, 3D printed terrain and uh, engraved mugs, tumblers, dice trays, all that stuff. Combat gauges. So check out both of those. And of course, if you'd like to join us on Patreon, support this beautiful, wonderful, ever so entertaining and educational show, then go join us at patreon.com slash pimpcron. And thank you to all of my Patreon patrons. I greatly appreciate it. I appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. What are we talking about today? Well, the main topic topic is how to design narrative games, the pitfalls and all of that of narrative games, because a lot of people don't understand how to do that exactly. And a lot of people have, I'm talking about true narrative games. You're not counting points. You have an objective and you have to complete the objective or you don't win. It's most of the time it's like that in real life. So these are true objective uh, narrative games. Then we have a an email from Seth about brutality. And then we also have um, a review of the Trogoth model kit. So it's a want that or want that not, but it's a little different than normal. So I want you to go check that out. What have I been up to? Well, this week at the club, I played against Ash's uh, uh, Soul Blight, and he has made an entire uh, wolf army. So he's got um, the wolf guy. I forget his name. Um, Ra- Ragnikin or something. Anyway. The, the wolf guy and um, the other, the wolf lady, and he brought like 25,000 fucking wolves. No, he, he did bring a lot of wolves. He brought a lot of wolves. Wolves, I mean, I heard you like wolves, dogs, so I put wolves on your wolves is what happened. Um, I played my Night Haunt. It was actually a very good game. It was very tight. It was a very good game. Um, he ended up winning... Uh, by a little bit. I don't even remember what the score was. He ended up winning by a little bit because uh, he just kept bringing back wolves. He brought back wolves, and then he brought back wolves, and then he brought back wolves riding wolves. He just had so many wolves he could bring back, and I just couldn't keep up with that with Night Haunt. Night Haunt has only one guy that will bring back three models to a unit. Um, it's not really anyone, you know, it's, it's not something that's super helpful. And even though I have the uh, four up and vulnerable, essentially, uh, the, all my people are one wound. So it's not really, you know, it's not the same as bringing back a bajillion wolves. So he ended up winning that. It was still a very good game. I ended up killing probably all of his wolves over the course of the game. And at the end of the game, he had almost all of his wolves. He had at least two thirds of his wolves back on the board. It was it was insane. So what I really realized is what I probably should do. Um, Night Haunt was the wrong army to take against him because if I had any shooting, I should have taken out his leaders. Um, what he's got going on there is a is a powerful combination, but I don't think it's unbreakable. I don't think it's super cheesy. Um, I just didn't know how it worked properly because I've never faced it. So in the future, if I have any ranged shooting, I will definitely be going after those characters because that's what's bringing back the wolves and all that. Um, so anyway, it was a good game. 
Uh, then the night after that, I had my teen library Warhammer meetup. It's our monthly meetup, and I I played uh, Warhammer 40k with two teenagers, and um, the one of them is the the guy that's always there, Max. And then his his friend Tyler came for the second time, and Tyler's getting really man. That kid's got the bug. He <laughs> he reminds me of me or James. Uh, he's like. Oh man, I was I bought some cast Space Marines, but then I I played with your Necrons the other time, and I'm like, oh man, I want Necrons now. I'm I'm gonna start a Necron army. And then this week I brought Guard for him to play. So him and I teamed up against Max with Guard. Then he's like, oh my god, the Guard's so cool. Oh, I was gonna get cast Space Marines, and I bought one box of them, but then I was thinking about Necrons. So then I bought some Necrons, and now I want to play Guard. I'm like, okay, okay, <laughs> calm down, Tyler. <laughs> like, like I know the feeling. I totally know the feeling. But just calm down because you're you're going to end up spending. And then he was like, and, you know, I'm the adult in the room. So I kind of I hate to like dash dreams. He's like, you know, I've got a lot of money saved for a car. So uh, I could probably spend like a thousand dollars on an army and, and I'd still have plenty of money for a car. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, Tyler, are you sure you want to do that? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, but. But just, you know, make sure this isn't impacting your car because you, you really maybe you should try to take it slow. I was trying not to be a downer, but I was also trying to breathe just a little bit of common sense in here. And he's like, well, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to start my first army is going to be Death Guard, even though he's already bought some cast Space Marines and he already bought some Necrons. But whatever. He's like, I think my first full army is going to be Death Guard. He's like, so I'm probably like, what if I just spent like a thousand bucks on Death Guard? And I was like, hold up, hold up, Tyler. I said, if you spend $1,000 on Death Guard, you're doing something wrong. And and he's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, Death Guard was in the, the uh, what, 9th edition or 8th edition? 8th edition. Um, Death Guard was in the 8th edition starter set. So you should be able to get a lot of Death Guard secondhand online or whatever for cheap. I mean, people, you know, you buy so many starter sets, you're just giving those models away at some point. So, so you're, you're definitely going to be able to go secondhand and you know, try to buy it as cheap as possible. Buy secondhand stuff, and you'll be able to find tons of Death Guard um, from the starter sets. I said, you, "There's no way you should be spending a thousand dollars on this army." Um, so I'm, I'm just, you know, these kids are young, so I'm trying not to dash their dreams, but I'm also trying to be like, "Bro, you don't want to not have a car because you spend it on Warhammer." Like that's, that's not, and I don't know what their like parental situation is. I don't know like if their parents are like, "Oh yeah, dude, spend it on Warhammer." I don't know. So I just want to make sure that I'm not like encouraging this this like horrible addiction in this kid. Um, but he definitely he's definitely excited about it. Um, and the other kid, Max, who has Ultramarines, he started a second army of uh, Trader Guard. So he started Trader Guard. So it's cool to see them getting excited about it. But I'm like, oh, hold your horses, pal. You a car is way more important than Warhammer. Um. Anyway, I put it as gently as possible to him. But we had a lot of fun. Uh, we ended up tying, actually. We did um, three different objectives, but they were scattered. So one was closer to Max, one was closer to us, and the one in the middle was in the middle. And uh, we played guard. And um, we ended up at the very end, had to math hammer it, but pretty positive of this outcome, that we tied three to three. We had the lead on Max originally, but then towards the end, he got an extra point, and then it was three to three at the end. So that was good. Everybody was pretty happy. Um, like I discuss in the uh, building a narrative at the end of the show, um, I say that um, you know people like a close game. You don't even care if you lost if it's a close game. Um, so that it was a close game and they'd enjoyed it. 
Then, I can't believe it, I got a third game in this week. James came over yesterday, and we played uh, Age of Sigmar. I played my Tomb Kings, and uh, my custom Tomb King army. And uh, James brought just a silly list he wanted to try. He said, you know, you can bring these, like, uh, flares, these Slanesh, the combine things, you know, with the, they're being pulled by the Seekers. I can't remember what they're called. They're flares or whatever. And um, you can bring a whole army of them because if you take the exalted person on one of them, then it makes the generic version of them battle line. So he brought an entire uh, 2000 point army of nothing but those combine things. And there's three different versions of them. So he brought all of them and he had to proxy a bunch of them. He had to borrow my two and he had to proxy a bunch of them um, on pieces of cutout cardboard. Uh, so that was pretty ghetto. But um. Anyway, my Tomb Kings, I did end up winning, and um, my Tomb Kings, uh, we won by two points. I think it was eight to six. It was ten to eight. It was ten to eight. And um, anyway, that was a good game too. My, uh, I'm still tweaking my Tomb Kings, um, and uh, I've I've nerfed them quite a bit from which from the way they were originally. So I'm trying to see if that works out. But it was a pretty darn close game. He did a really good first turn. His first turn, all his charges, he wiped out three of my units in the first turn. So that was pretty gross. And then after that, though, I was able to clap back pretty well. So anyway, that's about it for me. So let's get on with the rest of the show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. And now it's time for Tesseract mailbox with the Pimpcron. Today, we have an email from Seth. And we were discussing previous to this email, um, he heard me lamenting because I did a t-shirt giveaway on Facebook for um, just spreading the words like a grassroots campaign for um, uh, brutality. And Facebook decided to show it to exactly nobody in my group. Now, that's an exaggeration. Out of 4,200 people in the brutality group, uh, Facebook showed it to like 300 people. <laughs> like, like... Uh, Less than 10% of the actual people. So I didn't have a whole lot of participation. And um, anyway, so this is this is a letter from Seth. He goes, uh, uh, Seth is actually the one that ended up winning it. He did a bunch of votes and uh, he ended up winning. He shared it in a bunch of places. And uh, he said, don't let the participation numbers get you down, amigo. You still have a thriving online community where there are new people coming to the game and community with regularity. But even still, remember that there are tons of others out there who can't or won't get on Facebook but still love the game. I play with two different guys every week at the game store on lunch, both of whom are excited and passionate about the game, but have not really expressed an interest in joining the online community. It's just not their thing. Plus, there are two other guys who I play Brutality with over the web every couple weeks who both love it tremendously as well. To say nothing of all of my kids and wife who have multiple warbands as well as my brother and his kids all who play too. There are plenty of others who are not regulars at the game store whom I have talked to about the game when they pass through and seem to express a genuine interest in it and have stated that they will pick up a copy. I know it's unlikely that all of them actually buy it, but they may well mention it to someone else who does. So for everyone who comments on the page, there are likely many more out there loving it you've never no even known about. I believe wholeheartedly that Brutality is living, vital, and growing, and look forward to seeing what where you take it. 
Remember, you're not doing this all by yourself. First and most importantly, you have your family. Cherish them first and the game, and your life will grow all the better for it. And as a side note, know that there are plenty of us out here whose lives have been made better by your hard work as well. Hope you have a great rest of your day, Seth. So, Seth, um, I've already replied to you via email, but I do have to say that a lot of people don't realize that the independent game creator sort of thing is, and this is in no way a whine, I'm just explaining it to all of you, the majority of you who have never made a game, it's kind of lonely. Like, the whole situation is kind of lonely. I spend hundreds of hours making these books and and all of that, um, you know, sitting at a computer, editing and, and formatting and writing and then editing seven more times and, and ho- buying copies and editing again and, and all that. It's a very solitary thing. I don't have a team of writers or team of artists or whatever. So truly, I enjoy game design 100%, but I can't express to you how great it is to to every once in a while someone on on the brutality page will comment on a post or whatever and they'll be like oh this game's awesome or oh i love it or i'm starting a new warband or or whatever and that is the fuel that keeps me going with design and i'm sure every single game designer out there is the exact same because of course you don't want all of your effort to go to waste you don't want all of your hard work to be not seen by a single soul so everybody wants their games to be played especially for me, because as I've mentioned many times on the podcast, my entire life I've been making board games, card games, RPGs, all of that. And all my circle of friends really weren't gamers, so they just kind of patronized me. They had fun, but gaming's not really their thing. So, you know, so it's so nice to finally have a community of people that actually like the game I put so much effort into. And it's things, it's messages like this, Seth, that, that really inspire me and drive me to continue because it's great to know but there are people out there that enjoy my work and all of that. So I'm happy. It couldn't have gone to a more supportive person, honestly, in Seth. Um, he, they all, every time they shared it or whatever, um, they each got one point towards their name. And then I used an online random number generator that you set the, the you know, one, two, whatever, and then you just click the randomize button. Um, but Seth was a third of them. So uh, his his points were a third of the total points. So he shared it in a ton of different places and all that. So he's very vocal and very supportive, which honestly, Seth reminds me a lot of myself because I, anytime that I've gotten into a game, I'm very vocal, very supportive, very whatever. I mean, I have a Warhammer podcast for crying out loud because I like Warhammer, you know? Um, There's been multiple games that I got into, Firestorm Armada or Malifaux or... um, uh, Fantaside, which is a defunct game now, but all those, I preached the gospel of that. I went around and got my friends to try it and all of that. So it's really a game lives or dies on its ambassadors. And there's no way to create ambassadors, unfortunately. They just happen, such as Seth or such as my friend Matt. Matt has been instrumental in, in, you know, like looking over the book for typos and things like that and then helping me play test stuff and coming up with some background ideas and, and all of that. Um, uh, he's just been a very, very supportive friend. And um, even Leroy Jenkins. Leroy Jenkins uh, wrote a couple of articles on uh, Spiky Bits about brutality. And, and we got a, a huge influx of people into the group from that. So uh, Leroy Jenkins and Matt both... Uh, proofread my entire short story collection front to back um of of the uh tales from the brutal so that's also helpful i also um hired you know professional proofreaders as well but they were my first line 
you know, there's no point to to give a proofreader like a total trash script, right? So you gotta you gotta have some friends or family read it through it first to iron out most of the kinks, and then you get into the professional proofreaders. But um, anyway, so it is it truly is inspirational and encouraging that somebody would take the time out of their day to write so positively uh, about all of my work and all that. And this, I'm not trying to brag or be self-serving or anything like that, but me personally, I enjoy talking to people in real life because I always see that everybody has such a different point of view or different personality or different experiences in life. And we truly are so unique, all of us, even the people, you know, you could take a group of goths, right? Just like 10 goth teenagers. And even though they might dress alike, even though they might have the same outward disposition, even though they might like the same fashion or the same music or whatever, all 10 of them, if you ask them 20 questions, you'll probably get 20 different answers or something of the like from all 10 of them. You know, it's like, it's so neat that even though people can be so similar, we're all still so unique. And um, I just wanted to explain this side of the game design um, to those of you who don't know about that, you go, oh, you know, you're just make games and that that's fine. And it is, it's great. I love making games. I love game design, but it does get kind of lonely and just a little bit of encouragement once in a while goes a long way. So if you know any independent creators, right, that do skirmish games or, or, or literally anything, card games, whatever, something other than Wizards of the Coast or Games Workshop, none of the big guys, but if you know little guys that do that, Every once in a while, even if you passively like their game, even if it's not your favorite game in the world, just shoot them a message and go, hey, I really like your game. Good job. And you don't understand how encouraging that is for someone. Um, and the same thing would go for writers or for anybody that's doing, you know, a skill, working on a skill or a talent or anything. So anyway, I've rambled on long enough, but thank you so much, Seth. It's very encouraging. And uh, yeah, he won the T-shirt. Yeah. So congratulations, Seth, on winning the T-shirt contest. Want that, or want that not? All right, so it's time for Want That or Want That Not, and I'm doing something a little bit different today, okay? I'm actually giving you a Want That or Want That Not on a model kit that I already own and have been assembling, because this is a slightly different take on the typical, oh, yeah, I definitely would buy this. I already did buy this, okay? So first off, the Rock Gut Trogoths. I'm making a whole army of them for Age of Sigmar. Number one... The models are beautiful, they're awesome, they have a ton of character and all of that, okay? All that noise, but I'm not really going to get into that. I think they're great models. I think they're 60 bucks for three, which is kind of to be expected now. I really wish it was 50 bucks, but go figure. So the, the price is neither here nor there. It's your typical fare for three big models that are multi-wound. But the thing that I got to go on about this model kit, occasionally I'll talk about a model kit that was an absolute pain in the ass to put together, um, such as the Redemptor Dreadnought, and um, or the Monolith, or, well, not the new Monolith, the old Monolith, but um, there's been some kits that were a total pain in the ass to build. But, I gotta tell you, the Trogoth kit, um, it's not hard to build, that's not really my issue, and um, uh, it's, it's, it's okay, it's like 17 or 18 parts for just one Trogoth, which seems like an awful lot <laughs> for, for one model. Um, and, and it all fits together perfectly fine and all that. But the one thing I really wanted to discuss here is I was blown away by the diversity and customization of the Trogoths. So a lot of these, you know, three model big units with multi-wound and all that, 
a lot of them come in like three poses, one for each model. That's it. So if you're going to be like me and make 20 of them for an army, you're going to have the same three freaking poses over and over and over. Okay. That is not at all what they did with the Trogoths, and I am super impressed by it, okay? They might be eight pieces each, but the there's uh, three sets of legs, and the legs cause the torso to be turned in different ways when you put the torso up top on, on the pelvis. So you've got three different positions. One's like twisted right, one's twisted left, one's, one's like standing upright. Okay. So right there is three different variations, which is super helpful because then it also comes with nine different heads. So it comes with nine heads for the just three bodies. So think about that customization right there, that even though I've got 20 models, right? Um, I'm only going to have roughly two models with each head. And then when I customize them with different arms and different torsos, they're not going to look the same at all. They're going to be completely unique, which I really, really appreciate. But here's the kicker. The Trogoths come with uh, something around, um, I'm trying to think, they've got two sets of double-handed, like where they're holding a big stick or uh, an axe or whatever. they got two sets of those. But then they have something like eight, like four left arms and like four right arms. And the torso is not one piece. The left arm and the pec and the, the left pec and the left back is one half of the torso, and that locks in with literally any of the other right, peck, back, and arms. So, not only do you have three different legs, not only do you have nine different heads, but you have a total of something like nine uh, different upper torsos that you can build them as, but think of the customization. Uh, four times four is 16 possible combinations, and like one arm is holding up a grot that's stuck in his hand, Another arm is, has a goat slung over his shoulder, and there's multiple, like, just, like, clawed hand poses. There's multiple, like, holding a rock in his hand or holding a, um, a hammer made of crystals or whatever. So I can literally make 20 Trogoths, and no two of them will have the same arm combination. Uh, no, maybe I might have two or three of them with the same arm combination, but you get the point. It's like it's like crazy out of a huge group of these people all coming from the same box. You can make so much variation. And I just have to, you know, I like to bash on GW when they mess up, but I also have to be fair and give them props when they do good. And this they knocked this out of the park. I think it's awesome. Oh, I didn't even mention that there is like something like six different necks that go with these models. So for three models, they have three different sets of legs, uh, like nine different upper torsos, nine different heads, and then they have something like uh, six different necks. And the necks will obviously turn the head in different directions. It'll turn it left, right, up, down, all that. So when you look at different models and you're trying to make models unique and, and everything, you really should look at the profile of the model, not how it's painted or whatever. If you want a whole group of people to, to look like it's a, a real mass of troops, you want to make sure their profile, if you just took their silhouette, make sure their profiles are all different. One should be sticking the sword out, sticking the sword over his head, swinging the sword, um, two-handing the sword, running, whatever. You just want them all to look different. And then when you cluster them all together, it's like, wow, that looks like a real 
you know, group of people that are in combat versus just three static poses repeated to infinity. So anyway, the Trogoth set is a fantastic kit set to uh, make sure that all your Trogoths look different and it's a completely unique army. I am very happy that GW did that. So that is an absolute want that for me, even though I already bought it, but you get what I'm saying. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. Well, it's that time of the podcast again where we discuss Real Talk with the Pentcron, where I choose, I handpick, I pluck from the grove of ideas a topic that I think you guys should, uh, should listen to. And I was talking to a friend the other day, and the idea of narrative games and how to design them and all that came up recently. And uh, it's funny because I've had a lot of people in the past ask me about narrative games. You, you may know that I do a bunch of giant narratives at Shorehammer and things like that. So I've done the um, Pimpcron's Epic War Planner. That's on Amazon with all the different variations and narrative stuff for Warhammer and all that. So um, I've got quite a bit of experience with narrative gaming and narrative game design. So I figured I would run you through all the paces of exactly what you should be looking out for and uh, ideas and pitfalls and things like that of narrative gaming because it is not for everybody. It truly isn't. So let's start with the players. You have to have two players that have the same mindset because that's going to affect the mission. It's going to affect the rules. It's going to affect uh, the list building, everything. So you need... Uh, two people that are willing to set aside their competitive differences. You know, one may be more tournament-oriented, one may be no more narrative or whatever, and they both have to agree, okay, listen, the goal of this game is not for me to win or for you to win per se. You're still going to make the best choices you can and all of that, but the real goal is to have a really cool game, and the closer it is, then the more fun both of us are going to have. Nobody ever gets upset over losing by one point or two points or three points. Nobody ever gets upset by that because you go, oh, man, I lost, but it was a close game. Another thing to think about in narrative gaming is that it's not me as a player versus you as a player. It's actually we're, we're playing a narrative. So we're looking down as gods on the battlefield, and it's this force on the board that happens to be controlled by me versus your force that happens to be controlled by you. But you have to look at them as real people. And you realize that war is never fair. Never, ever. Matter of fact, most of the time, um, reading about history and things like that, probably 70% of the battles turned out exactly the way that if you were literally a god looking down on the battlefield, you'd go, Oh yeah, side B is probably going to win just by looking at their resources, their morale, their number of people, their position, all of that stuff, their leadership. In real life, war is very unfair and is basically a gotcha. Whoever can catch the other person in a bad situation. But this is not making for very good narrative play because you guys want a fair game as best as you can make it and you want it to be fairly balanced. So what you do is you get two like-minded individuals that are willing to sacrifice everything for the narrative so that it is cool so that it you know in a clutch moment you might let the guy re-roll something or, or whatever just because it would be so cool if this happened or that happened okay that starts with the mindset then it comes to the list now there's several different ways you can do lists but a lot of times you might want to start making your list based off the mission 
And that way, you know that, and you're thinking about yourself, oh, well, I'm going to cheese it. I'm going to cheese it. Oh, if, if my army's got to move across the board, then I'm going to take all cavalry or jet bikes or what. No, no, no. That's actually the opposite of what you want to do. Realistically, make a list that you think would actually enter this situation. Okay. So, um, for instance, just as a, for instance, a couple months ago, I played a narrative game, a purely narrative game where this castle that I had was a brewery and all of my forces around it were basically the local townspeople and everything. And my friend David had, uh, these gargants and his, uh, I think it was his sons of Bahamut or whatever, but they were trying to get to the brewery because the gargants think that they weren't paid well enough for their last battle or whatever with the orcs so they came to raid our brewery and all of our citizens were like no you're not raiding our brewery this is the only source of income for our town so that's basically the basis for it so in this case he's got to get across the board and do a monstrous action into my brewery to destroy it and start drinking the alcohol and then i instantly fail in this particular mission, it didn't really behoove either one of us to be super fast or super anything, you know, like take a lot of magic or have anything like that. So we basically were able to take um, two normal lists. And of course, at the beginning of the game, you should look over your opponent's list and see, let's say he's taking 17 Lehman Russes and all you've got is Grotz. You're going to be like, hey, uh, this is not going to be a fair game. It's not going to be. Remember the goal and remind your opponent. Remember the goal is that we have a very close game. Not that one of us gets steamrolled, because that's never fun, even in a narrative or a competitive game. So then they could change their list or whatever. Now, if you want this codified a little more, because a lot of this, I talk about the mindset of the players, they have to have a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of foresight, a little bit of uh, experience wargaming. Um, it may not work out so well with brand new players, because they don't know necessarily they might go oh well i took all grots and he took all lehman russes oh well that's still fair it's the same number of points well not entirely because grots have low morale a lot of people will be running they've got no save etc 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 and uh, it's just not going to be a very even matchup so that is one of the first things to do is make sure that both of the lists are pretty well balanced and nothing is like super abusive or something like that one of the things we've decided is that it's always fun to um, make basically uh, an extra 500 point list. So I've, I've discussed this on the podcast before, but maybe you haven't heard it, is that it, let's say we're going to play a, a 1500 point game, right? Well, each one of us actually makes four 500 point lists. So it's a 2000 point list total, but each one of them is an individual list and we're ignoring the force org. So uh, we're ignoring detachments, all of that. So then you present your four lists to your opponent and he picks one of the lists he doesn't want to play against. So that is a really interesting dynamic because you don't want to put your Death Star in one unit, in one list, because if I see the Death Star, I'm just going to be like, oh yeah, I don't want to play against the Death Star, so I'm cutting that out. And you do the same thing for me. So what it ends up doing is it forces people to passively make a much more well-rounded list and it's not so heavy or, or whatever or lopsided. And they know that whatever they put in there, you, you can potentially cut out. So uh, as far as synergies and planning and stuff, it's really hard to plan for that, which actually makes it really good because the fewer synergies you have in these narrative lists, the less OP, the less abusive that it gets. So it's actually a really good idea. When thinking about a mission, 
you typically want to pick something, a scenario or whatever that you want to do that will um, that will facilitate a narrative, like such as my brewery being destroyed. And then you go, oh, okay, well, ale guzzler gargants get paid in alcohol, right, by the people that hire them. And why don't we make this castle a brewery? And then they're trying to attack the brewery. That's awesome. Okay, are we going to give the castle, like, stats? You certainly could. You know, give it the stats of a, a land raider if you're playing 40k. Or give it the stats of, I don't know, a mall crusher or something if you're playing Age of Sigmar. But what we decided instead is because it's a building and he's got an army essentially full of monsters that can all do monstrous actions. Why don't we just do the already existing for Age of Sigmar monstrous action of destroying a piece of scenery? So we're like, okay, that's awesome. So essentially, I am trying to bubble wrap this brewery and keep him from getting into base contact with it. And he's trying to chew through my people and then take a monstrous action and, and destroy it. So that, that worked out really well. Now, as far as deployment goes, um, you want to make sure that typically it's a good idea to stay tw uh, 24 inches away from each other. And that's you'll notice that almost all of Games Workshop's mission deployments are 24 inches from deployment zones. That's usually a good idea. I would never do closer than 18 inches. Because um, occasionally, like, let's say your mission is you're deploying in the very center and your opponent has to deploy 24 inches away from you. A lot of times that ends up just being the two long sides, because if you're doing 24 inches, well, then there's no way that they can s properly encircle you. And properly encircling someone is, is one of the neat things about deploying in the center and then someone can deploy all the way around you. It does give you some anxiety. It does give you a siege effect. You know, you're like, oh, God, I'm surrounded on all sides. There's nowhere to run. And it does actually have a psychological effect on the player. So it's, it's quite fun. So as far as the mission goes, um, you often want to pick one primary mission and you're like, OK, this is what we're doing, like destroying the brewery. But it's also really good to have a secondary uh, objective that the let's say the defender of the brewery chooses when they all are also trying to win essentially like okay we can stop these gargants if we kill the mega gargant if we can kill him then the rest of them are going to go oh god and they're going to run away so that's what we ended up doing the mega gargant was the leader and we threw everything into him he kept doing heroic actions so he was healing and um it was it was quite fun we knew we whittled him down down to just it was under 10 hit points. We whittled them down pretty well. Meanwhile, my, my lines are being bombarded by Gargants, which was quite crazy and fun and a, a bit anxious too. In the end, what ended up happening is, is that my left side ended up collapsing, failed morale, ran away, all of that. And then he was able to uh, finally do his monstrous action where he broke through my, my defenses. And they ended up destroying the brewery. So... You know, you very well could make a campaign out of that. Okay, they destroyed our brewery. You know what? Next mission, we're going to get revenge on you guys. We're we're going to go raid your your stockpile of ale or whatever for the Gargants. And then we could reverse it and do something different the next time we meet. And so you see that is feeding into the narrative of it. We have a reason for fighting back now. You had a reason for attacking us. We have a reason for fighting back. And and that's the way it goes. It's It's quite fun. Um, another thing is that the less control you can take from your players, because players are naturally going to play a bit competitive, obviously. They're trying to win, although you should be curbing that in a narrative game, truly. But they are truly trying to win. So they should be making the best decisions, etc. So a lot of times, um, 
like such as taking it, cutting out what 500 points of the list, um, things like that, that takes a little bit of control away from the player and it tones down on the cheese and the synergies. Another thing that really cuts down on that is randomizing the deployment. So if you want to break up your deployment zone up into six zones, and I, I have a way of doing that, I've, I've discussed it on the podcast before, but um, to break it up into six zones, if you either don't have a mission yet, a lot of times that will help inform what type of mission you're going to do by what random deployment zones all your units go in. But even if you do have a mission in mind, it's pretty cool to have six different zones, and every time you go to deploy a unit, you roll for what zone they have to be deployed in, a, a 12 by 12 inch square. And that gets really cool, because that takes the deployment out of your... Which, keep in mind, in, in reality, a lot of the deployments and the uh, tactics of real-world generals in the past have been out of their hands. They either got caught with their pants down when they're at camp or whatever, or they caught the other people in a uh, compromising position, you know, trying to cross a river or, or whatever. So this actually helps inform sometimes the mission you play, if you don't have an idea yet, or it also cuts down on synergies, which is good for narrative. And thirdly, randomizing the deployment keeps you from... Uh, if you do have the synergies in your list, it helps break up your synergies. And occasionally it puts you in a weird circumstance because like, let's say you take a couple wizards, right? And the wizards accidentally, you, you rolled for the deployment, they deploy right up to the center of the board or something like that. And you're like, oh God, that is, that is rough. You know, um, the way we do it, if you can think about your half of the board, right? In Age of Sigmar or 40K. We make six 12-inch um, squares. One is all the way to the left, all the way up touching. It's your half of the board, but it's touching the center line. Then go to the right, and there's a square center right uh, touching the center line right in the middle. And then there's one on the right touching the center line. Then touching that right deployment zone along that edge is one that touches your backboard, a 12-inch one. And then there's another one right in the middle touching your backboard. And there's one on the left touching your backboard. So it ends up, you you really do get spread out, and it really makes the game interesting. It really does. It might sound like, oh, I don't want to do that, but but really, it's it's really cool. So like I said, you might have some wizards that get deployed directly on the middle line of the board, and keep in mind that with this random deployment, sometimes you can have enemies that deploy right next to your units. Now, I know I said that the 24-inch um, separation and all that, but the 24-inch separation is when you have control over where you deploy what. But when you do the randomized deployment, it actually works pretty well because it is like getting, you know, getting caught with your pants down. It really does work out well. So these are a bunch of the ideas that we've come up with. Um, one of these days, I'll probably make a book based on all the narrative stuff I've learned. Um, but keep in mind, you got to have the right state of mind. Make sure you've got a player that can actually tone it down and do this. Randomizing lists or taking things out is probably a good idea if you think there might be any chance, um, or it actually just simplifies things too. Um, if you don't want to do that, then you guys got to talk it out. I'm taking this, you're taking that. Do you think these are going to be even chances of winning? Okay. Then you want to decide what your mission is. Keep in mind 24 inches deployment separation if you don't have, if, if you do have control over deployment. Keep in mind it's also really fun to randomize deployment, in which case 24 inches separation is not necessary because you very well could have a great or terrible matchup. It's just random, just like real life is oftentimes on the battlefield. And then you also want to have a primary objective, which makes things nice and simple, but 
it's also good to have a secondary objective so that the defender can also do something to stop the attack. Um, and uh, that's or you can think of even doing reserves. You can you can have things in reserve like extra points or whatever. Um, another good idea that I actually didn't touch on is that sometimes we'll make like um, uh, an extra 500 point list or something like that. Or or sometimes uh, completely destroyed units can come back on the board occasionally. And that's if both people are feeling like, oh, this is kind of swinging in one person's favor. Then we'll both agree to, OK, you can bring on another unit because... We want that to be very, very close so that nobody's completely wiped off the board and nobody's completely crushing it. You want to balance that. So hopefully this is interesting and informative to all of you. Um, narratives are really one of my favorite things. Um, I've gotten better. I've ran what? I've ran seven narratives at Shorehammer now. Um, well, actually, no, because I run now we have three narratives each Shorehammer. So I've ran like like 20 narratives with 24 people in it having no idea what they're bringing in their lists, and they usually work out well. The couple times that they didn't work out so well is uh, one year I did make the mistake of not knowing that one of the armies had a uh, stratagem to run in the shooting phase. Yeah. So they were able to get the objective and then run away, and it was perfectly legal, but that did skew things quite a bit. Once again, war's never fair, but you kind of want your game to be as fair as possible. So uh, that that was a design issue on my part because I didn't know of that stratagem, and now I will definitely keep an eye out for that sort of thing from now on. That was a couple years ago. But um, usually what it is is that players do bad matchup on their own. They will, you know, they have to move across the board to do this, and then they put the player on there that's got four or five-inch movement with their troops. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you not put cavalry or jet bikes or whatever there? Um, so sometimes that does end up happening. So this year, actually, at Shorehammer, we're going to meet a half hour earlier and give people plenty of time. I'm actually going to put notes from the designer, which, of course, is me. Notes from the designer on each table going, listen, if you're on this side, you should put fast armies on this side. You have to cross the board and then go over here and go, look, on this board, you're going to want a lot of shooting because of whatever. And I'm help guide them and um, maybe they'll make better decisions because a few times we've had some bad matchups. It's because I let the teams just choose where they deploy their players and they made bad choices. And then they're like, oh, this isn't fair. I'm like, well, yeah, you got five inch movement. You're supposed to move 24 inches across the board. Like, yeah, that's not it's a bad choice. But this year, every year I get a little better. And this year I'm going to be holding their hand even more to try to make sure the games are balanced. Now, one thing, if you're doing it in a big group like uh, like Shorehammer, 24 people, right? Uh, 12 versus 12. Um, one thing that I do, and uh, this might be a good idea if you decide to run some big event, if it's more than two players, is I go around at the, the end of each round and I tell everybody, I, I call it taking the temperature. I go around each board and I go, all right, I'm taking the temperature. How are you guys feeling about it? I ask the one side, I ask the other side. And if they both go, well, it's pretty much up in the air. I go, okay, cool. I'm not going to mess with anything. And then I go to the next, the next um, battle area. And I go, okay, what about you guys? Temperature. And if one army's like, oh, we're getting our ass handed to us, and the other one's like, yeah, it's really in our favor, I go, I go okay, cool. And then they can bring back the destroyed units to help bolster, you know. And once again, you want it to be very, very close. So if one person's getting steamrolled, getting some extra units in there helps breathe more life and firepower and all that into their army. 
And that is how, starting this year, I've been able to really make the armies more balanced. And it's worked out really well. Anyway, thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show and Panhandle3D.etsy.com. And of course, my beautiful, sexy, good-smelling Patreon patrons. I will see you all next week. <laughs>